Well, thank you for being here. I mean, a, a Saturday morning is a valuable moment, <clears throat> usually to relax and the like, and so God bless you for being here. It says something about your hearts that you would want to be here and <clears throat> learn about Jesus and how to love others. I'd like to pray, and then we're going to, uh, we're going to jump into some material together. Father, I thank you so much for each person who's here. I thank you that you know us, that uh, you long to walk with us, change us from the inside out, and, and enable us to, uh, to bless others. And I pray that this time would be meaningful for each person here, that they would encounter you, and that uh, they would leave this time feeling full of hope and vision. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so, uh, the, the first time I met Simon was in Israel, and we went on. My son graduated from grade 12, and uh, you don't call it grade 12, do you? You call it? What's the last? Senior. Senior. That's right. So uh, he graduated, and we went for a, a month-long, uh, basically hiking or walking uh, tour through Israel. It was phenomenal. And, uh, and we were on the same uh, we were on the same tour, and so I got to know him while hiking through the wilderness. And uh, <clears throat> we have lots of stories of Simon embarrassing himself, and because <clears throat> he never does that here, I'm sure. But uh, you got it all out of your system a few years ago. <laughs> That's right. <clears throat> but he's just a dear friend, and it's always. Uh, a privilege to be able to uh, to serve together. We're going to be going through a talk. I, I think it's back there. It's called relational formation. We'll 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 talk. Everything for me is about relationship. But um, but I'd like to be able to go through this. So you have you all have the notes. So let me outline the purpose of leadership in Matthew 22. It says, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind." This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it: love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So if you were to summarize the whole Bible, is to love God and love others. <clears throat> that's super helpful to know. So I think that's all that's ever going on, is you're trying to love God and we're trying to love others. So the great commandment, which is what this is, is our life purpose. And the great commission, to go make disciples, is how we accomplish that purpose. So uh, uh, we're called to, we kind of expand on that that a, a healthy person uh, gives and receives love. So I have, a, I have a diploma in counseling. My mentor is a psychologist. I really care a lot about counseling <clears throat> and discipleship. And so I think a, a healthy person freely gives and freely receives love. I think that's all that's going on in life. I don't think there's anything else. If you have a job, you would like to probably re freely receive something. And uh, hopefully you freely give. And if you look at any emotional or psychological dysfunction, it somehow undermines the ability to receive or give love. So it's how we, do, well, there'll be a parenting seminar this afternoon, but it's how we talk about parenting. It's how I evaluate my life. Am I freely receiving God's love and am I freely giving God's love? Those are really the only two criteria that I have for how to live. And so I think that that's all that's going on. And then the great commandment to go and make disciples is to help others be like that. 
So making disciples or followers of Jesus, if they're following Jesus, they're going to be able to freely receive and freely give love. So I say that, uh, you know, the good news is we only have two problems in life. The bad news is they're really hard problems to overcome. I, uh, I hate receiving. I'd much rather be, uh, uh, be admired than forgiven. I don't want to be forgiven. I'd like to be admired. I hate receiving. If you take me out for lunch, I will remember and I'll pay next time. I always remember because I hate the feeling of feeling in debt. I don't like receiving. I mean, you think e-receiving is easy? Receiving is not easy, at least not for me. <clears throat> so I have problem receiving, and then I'm, I, I think I'm selfish, and so it's hard for me to give. But again, other than that, I'm a great person. But it's just those two things that, uh, <clears throat> that really are, are my, pro is my problem. And when I uh, uh, meet with people, I think that that's mostly what they're going through. It's a struggling to know how to freely receive, how to freely give. So we apprentice people then in relational development. That's the definition. It's from the Every Nation Church in the Philippines. They describe discipleship as relational development. We're helping people have a healthy relationship with God, one another, and the world. And again, I think that that's all that the church is about. So the church combines these into one ministry, you'll see in your notes, the ministry of reconciliation. I think the church only has one ministry. It doesn't have kids ministry and young adults and campus ministry and worship. It has one ministry. It's the ministry of reconciliation, where we're trying to help people live in a right relationship with God and others. I think that's all that's ever going on in the church. It's the, uh, it's the meeting place of, uh, of, of God with us, of us with one another, in a place where the world can come in and taste of the goodness of God. And so uh, I think we're doing Christian ministry when we're helping people be connected to God and others. I think that's what Christian ministry does. This to me uh, redeems all that we do, <coughs> that, <coughs> that if we, um, our work, our daily work is valuable, if it's a ministry of reconciliation. So people who are in construction, I used to be a woodwork and drafting teacher. We just built, I don't think you guys, have you heard of this phrase, a laneway house? Have you ever heard of that before? You, uh, what you do is you tear down your garage in your back lane and then you build a little house. It's called a laneway house in Vancouver. There's no more land, so they're trying to densify through uh, various means, this is one of them. So we just built a laneway house, my son and his, uh, new bride are, are living in it and so we got to do you know lots of the lots of the work on it I really really enjoy working with my hands and so construction work is a ministry of reconciliation is creating space for community and as such it's incredibly valuable work uh, all work becomes valuable when it's about bringing people into right relationship with something so that's what teachers do they bring people into right relationship with knowledge and that's a valuable, it's a valuable ministry. Uh, people who are in the, uh, in the medical field are bringing people into right relationship with their bodies, <clears throat> helping them have healthier bodies. It's a ministry of reconciliation. It's bringing things into harmony. And I think that that's what Christians do. I think it's the only ministry that Christians have, both in the church and outside of the church. Um, if you're in communications, you're helping people communicate. Whatever we do, when it's done in the name of reconciliation, 
it's valuable work. <clears throat> so I don't think that Christian ministry is limited to what goes on inside of the church. It's what we do all week long. And to the degree that we're doing a ministry of reconciliation, we're doing the work of Christ. <clears throat> so that's our purpose. That's, uh, I think it's all that we're thinking about. <clears throat> By the way, it's interesting to note that uh, in society, what there is a dearth of are managers, <clears throat> but there's lots of technicians. So what society seems to be able to generate is people who have a skill set. They can be engineers or <clears throat> researchers or things like that, super valuable work. Again, it's a ministry of reconciliation. But what, uh, what they notice in the workforce is that there's not very many people who actually know how to work with others and help others work together. Um, it's hard to find managers these days because I think that our society is becoming less and less relationally mature. And so even for you to be here today, uh, it's great for the kingdom of God. Hopefully it'll be great for you. And it's great for society if we can teach people how to love others and how to help people work together. I think it's a really big deal. There was a research done with 2,000 employers and they were asked, <clears throat> what is the top three reasons why you uh, fired somebody, you know, in the last three years or whatever? And um, in two out of three cases, it's they couldn't get along with others. It wasn't about their skill or, or uh, technical capacity. It was their relational capacity. And so I think that what's going on in the world today, the world needs Christians to be ministers of reconciliation and to help them know how to get along with God and others. It's a really big deal. And our society is not moving in this direction, unfortunately. <clears throat> Do you want to maybe put those notes in the back? And then... <clears throat> Hi. So are you okay with that? That it's the great commandment defines all of life. I got to say this too. So what's so great, our life purpose then is not our vocation, it's love. So what that means is that all of life can be valuable, not just your nine to five. So nobody signs up to change diapers. There's never a life calling. But it becomes redeemed when it's about loving God and others. So all of life has, has meaning. You know, people say, what's my life purpose? It's not to become an engineer or a nurse. It's to love God and to love others. And if we love God and we love others, it doesn't matter what we do, it now becomes meaningful work. <clears throat> I worked in a pulp mill. I'm from uh, Port Alberni on Vancouver Island. <clears throat> and I worked in a pulp mill uh, during the summers when I was going through university. It was valuable work. I was making paper. You can thank me later. <clears throat> and, uh, and I was helping people communicate. I had valuable work. All right, so it redeems everything we do. <clears throat> and then when I stopped working, I then could love others. Life becomes meaningful when it's about love. Do you have any comments or questions about that? I've only just started talking. That's why my voice is going to cough a bit to begin with. <clears throat> you okay with that? So what are some other life purposes that motivate people? 
What are other life purposes that you hear about? Huge life purpose, self-sufficiency, yeah? Be famous, at least for 15 minutes, yeah. Particular vocation, getting married, um, a hobby that you really care about. <clears throat> All of those things are fine, but they can actually compete. Getting married might have nothing to do with loving others. It's possible, right? Uh, a friend of mine is a podiatrist, a foot doctor, and he's uh, in his 50s, and uh, he says, I don't want to get married because isn't this, it's a horrible thing to say, all right? But it's just interesting that he said it. He says, uh, the unmarried women that I know, he's Jewish, the unmarried women that I know um, just want me to be a resource. I don't think they'll ever love me. So I'd rather be alone than be treated that way. What an interesting take on life. <clears throat> but love, God's love, redeems everything. So what's the leadership challenge? How do we lead people toward this purpose? Well, first of all, we model it. Follow me as I follow Christ. And so we try to live this way. And one of the greatest gifts that we can give to the people around us is for people to watch us trying to love God and love others. I have, I'm really into uh, biking, especially mountain biking. <clears throat> And I, there's a particular bike shop that I go to all the time. <clears throat> and um, I've befriended the owner, and he, uh, he read, I, re I wrote a book, and he says, this is the best effing book I've ever read. <laughs> so I don't know that it helped him much. But anyways, <clears throat> um, but he says, and I gave it to my girlfriend, who he's living with, and she says, uh, she says, I read your book because you have 11 children, and most of them are, are foster children. I wouldn't have read your book if you didn't have 11 kids. I wouldn't care about what you said unless I knew that you were trying to live it out yourself. Interesting, isn't it? How people make judgments on things. I think it's legitimate. You, know, you don't have to have 11 kids, but you have to try to model something. So the leadership challenge is ownership. <clears throat> if you've ever, if you are in a position of leadership, or you are looking forward to leadership, I'll tell you what the number one problem is, to have people care as much as you do. It's just the number one problem. So uh, um, whether you're doing sound or worship, or you're with the kids, people will volunteer. It's really hard whether they'll care as much as you. It's one thing to get people to do jobs. It's another thing to get people to care about the jobs they do. It's really hard. And if you've been a manager in the workforce, you know what this is like. It's just like, what do you want me to do? And you know, we want you to you know, <clears throat> do this research. Okay, and how long do you, like it's just, it's just, you know, it's like, like could you, I don't know, like care? <laughs> you know, but it's just hard to get people to care about something. They just put in their time. So ownership is always the hardest thing to do in leadership. You can kind of mobilize volunteers, but to get people to own something, that's a trick.
people embracing love and discipleship as their life purpose. That's harder. <clears throat> so, so what's my doctoral degree is in leadership development. I've read hundreds of books on leadership, and this is what they mostly say. To solve this challenge, leaders typically cast a compelling vision. That's all, that's jargon. They cast a compelling vision and call people to follow their plan. So most leaders are salespeople. They, uh, <clears throat> they try to come up with something really trendy or unique or whatever it is, and then you sell people on it. <clears throat> and it helps if you have a PowerPoint or a few testimonies, but it's mostly salesmanship. And then when you, uh, when you cast your vision, then you have, to have, you have to back it up, and then you have a plan. And this is how you can participate in the vision. And so churches call it a discipleship path. Um, businesses will have, have different words for it. But you'll have a mission statement, and then you'll have a, you'll have a, a program that you, uh, that you roll out. Um, here's the problem with that. There's lots of problems with it, I think. I'm a horrible salesman. I'm just horrible at it. I don't have the right voice. The problem is few leaders are that gifted to be that compelling. It's hard to be that compelling. And a few followers are that responsive. It's just hard to find people who will sign up for stuff. And so you have lots of frustrated leaders, lots of frustrated pastors who feel like they need to become more charismatic. Uh, lots of followers who are just waiting to find that ideal leader that will just unlock their personal potential and they'll become fulfilled. As if a job would ever fulfill anybody. Only love fulfills. But we don't think that way. <clears throat> and, uh, and it prohibits multiplication because it's so hard to do. So you have mega churches <clears throat> and then kind of churches our size. So here's what I'd like to present to you as a model that I, I, I'll, I'll say how it came to us and then... Uh, I think there's a different job description. <clears throat> so uh, we have a church up in Vancouver, and um, one of our we have two main universities. One of them is Simon Fraser University, and we have some campus missionaries up there. And somebody came to Christ through our ministry, a woman from China, and uh, just a, a great girl. And so she becomes a campus missionary, and then she goes up to a white dude, which is already a problem. She goes up to a white dude to tell him about Jesus, you know. So she comes up to a guy on campus and says, uh, and so she, by the way, she's in a staff meeting uh, telling us the story, you know. So she comes up to this white dude and says, Jesus loves you. And he says, why wouldn't he? Like, that's not a revelation. <laughs> Everybody loves me. What's there not to love? And she goes, no, no, you don't understand. You're a sinner. And uh, she's from China, so she's still working through cultural, you know, <coughs> issues. And he says, look, what you Christians call sin, I call solutions. He says, if I'm at work and I do a mistake, I lie. Super helpful. If I'm, uh, if I'm feeling stressed out, weed is always there for me. If I'm sexually frustrated, it's why I go to the bar. What you Christians call sin, I call solutions. So she comes to our staff and he says, you know, it's pastor. They always call me a pastor when they, you know, pastor, what should I do, you know? And it's like, what do you do? And so I think that people come uh, 
to a church experience with those kind, like what you call problems, those are not problems for me. <clears throat> and then we give them what's described as gospel solutions. Jesus loves you, he forgives your sins, he's gonna empower you to, uh, and it's just not impressive. Why is the gospel not impressive? Because I think people are working with the wrong problems. Only gospel problems require gospel solutions. But when we have other problems, Christianity makes no sense and perhaps takes them away from the solutions that they imagine working for them. I think the primary problem, so the primary issue that I work with uh, as a leader is giving people better problems. And when people truly embrace a better problem, Jesus makes tons of sense. And they'll sell everything to follow him. So I think, as leaders, we sell people on visions without giving them better problems first. <clears throat> and when people have problems that they can't solve, then Jesus will begin to make sense. But if they come with their presuppositions of what their problems are, and then we say, Jesus is going to help you with those, he usually doesn't. I'm not sure that Jesus is going to give me the best job ever and fulfill me and make me, as you said, self-sufficient. I'm just not sure he's going to do that. I think he has a different agenda for me. And so if I come in with the wrong set of problems, Jesus is going to be a disappointment to me. That's not what I signed up for. I signed up to be self-sufficient and have a satisfying marriage and retire when I'm 55 or something. And he is not working for me. So I'm just going to go somewhere else when I find somebody who's going to be able to do that. And so I think that leadership is first about clarifying uh, our root problems. So disciple-making leaders give people better problems versus better solutions. I'll just say one other thing, and then I'll show biblical examples of this. Um, I think the, one of the primary reasons why we, um, people don't sign up to be leaders is because we think our primary problem is to give people solutions, otherwise known as advice. And uh, I know in counseling, people almost never take advice. And if you give them advice, they'll show you how you're wrong. They'll prove you wrong every time. People almost never need advice. <clears throat> but I think most Christian, most leaders, but including Christian leaders, think that our job is someone comes with a problem and then it's our job to solve their problems. I just don't think that's my job. I really don't. I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of your particular situation. Um, I don't know what God's doing in your life. I, I don't think my ideas, my advice, is like the best thing. I just don't think that's my job. But if I can give you clearer problems, then you'll probably go to Jesus to find more helpful solutions. So this we see in Scripture over and over and over again. This isn't psychology, this is the Bible. We see this in the prophets. 
So what in, in, if, if you live during that time, you have two main problems. The first problem is famine, and the second problem is enemies, war. Those are, in, in uh, counseling, those are called your presenting problems, your presenting issues, right? That if you live during that time, I want it to rain, the right amount, the right time. I want it to rain, and I, and I, want, I want an army to protect me. <clears throat> if you live at that time, that's your primary agenda. What do the prophets come and say? That's not your problem. Your problem is idolatry. <laughs> that's not my problem. My problem is there's no rain, and the Moabites keep raiding my farm. That's my problem. It just doesn't make any sense. And it, 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 was, it, it was, can you imagine convincing people who are starving and at war that idolatry is your real problem? That's a hard sell. But that's the, that was the job of the prophets, is to clarify the problem. And those who, who, who actually grabbed hold that that was the real problem, wouldn't you know it? The rains came and there was peace in the land. But it wasn't a direct correlation. There was a, a bit of a gap between the two. That's why we live a life of faith. This is what Jesus did. So if you're a fisherman, what's your primary problem? It's not complicated. What is it? Catch fish. It's a super straightforward life. It's a good day when I catch fish. It's a bad day when I don't. It's just very, very straightforward. What does Jesus say? Come follow me, and I'll teach you how to fish for men. It's like, okay, I have never heard of that problem. That's a new, and that problem, there was no answer. That problem was so compelling, you guys, they left everything to follow him. Isn't that incredible? They found a better life problem, and it so captivated their hearts, they left their old problem, catching fish, to learn how to fish for men. This is the uh, first sermon. What is the problem that the crowd that the crowd came together for. That's <clears throat> not great grammar. <clears throat> what, was that, what was that initial problem? Well, they heard people speaking in tongues and they thought that they were drunk and they were curious what was going on. So they came for a spectacle. That was their, that was their presenting issue. Is, well, that looks weird. And how does the sermon end? You killed the Messiah. That's a different problem. And it said when the problem was clarified, they were cut to their heart and said, brothers, what should we do to be saved? The purpose of Peter was to give them a better problem. When they grabbed hold of that problem, dare I say, almost the rest took care of itself. Because now you need Jesus, and you're gonna get forgiveness, and you're gonna get empowered. All the things are gonna follow, but the problem is the first issue. <clears throat> Discipleship and counseling. People struggle because they have tried every solution and nothing works. If you go for counseling, I've been for counseling many times. I go to my counselor and I say, I've tried everything, which is never true, and nothing worked, which is also never true. But that's how you feel when you go for counseling. <clears throat> um, new problems produce the need to explore new solutions. So I spend my energy working on helping them grab hold of a better problem. And as soon as that problem grabs their heart, I'm almost done my job. <clears throat> I 
have uh, three biological kids. Uh, all of them are in uh, vocational ministry. And I think it's because our family has a call on it, on, a, on us. I don't think we're special in any way. It's just what we've been given to do in the kingdom. And my oldest son is our uh, executive pastor. Uh, my daughter is a missionary in high schools, and my son is just going into being a campus missionary. He's raising support right now. Really, really great kids. I never ask them to go into ministry. Never. I, I actually wouldn't do that because I'm suspicious. I don't want them to feel any pressure or obligation. It's not a higher level of Christian if you go into vocational ministry. I just didn't want that pressure or expectation. Um, and... Uh, and they're all in ministry. Why would that be? Because I've shared my problem with them. How do you help people love Jesus? We talk about it all the time. How do you help people actually love Jesus? That problem captured their hearts and they now care about that as a life calling. I find that so interesting. My, uh, my parents uh, had foster kids. I hated having foster brothers and sisters. I just hated it. I just felt like I wanted my parents to myself, super selfish kid. And uh, they were just an inconvenience and they were always challenging kids, you know. I used to complain about it all the time to my parents. And they would say, now Greg, you know, we have to care for people, they weren't Christians, but they have to care for people who don't have the same opportunities that we have. And I would just roll my eyes and whatever. And then now we have, you know, seven foster children and an adopted child. How do you get there? Their problem became my problem. When I talk with non-Christians, I mostly talk about my problems. Like they talk about their problems, and I talk about my problems. And then they give me solutions, because everybody in anxiety gives solutions. And I just say, oh, I've tried those solutions and they don't work. And I'm just heightening the tension so that they need Jesus. But I start with giving them better problems, the problems I'm working through. How do you actually love somebody? How does somebody's heart change? How do you change a heart? Do you throw money at it? <clears throat> the, uh, the seven um, kids, I hate calling them foster kids, they're just our kids, but I'm just trying to explain, give context. Um, the government has spent millions of dollars on our children in rehab programs for their mother. And we had one meeting with one of our kids that had seven doctors in it, you know, that are charging two to $300 an hour for one meeting. You know, it's just, uh, and then that's just, our, and then they have their cousins. And, you know, if you look at this one family that came from uh, Honduras, it just cost the government tons of money. <clears throat> I don't think money is our solution. <clears throat> so, uh, that's discipleship counseling. We confront people by making observations. I just should also say this. So, what, the way that we primarily do discipleship is we observe how they're, they're presenting problems are perhaps not their deepest problem. <clears throat> I think the deepest problem is our sinful hearts. I think that's the deepest problem in the world. I don't think it's funding. I don't think it's the government. Um, I don't think it's more education. I think my, my heart is the biggest problem in the world, as is yours. 
And unless solutions address our hearts, we haven't really gotten to the root problem. Leadership development. Like in Matthew, sorry, in Mark chapter 6, there's this huge crowd, and what does Jesus say? You give them something to eat. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> like, what's he doing? He's giving them a bigger problem, a problem that they can't solve on their own. And then they watch miracles, and they go, oh, I need to, I need to own problems that I can't solve. Interesting. I usually only sign up for problems that I can solve. You give me problems that I can't solve, which means that I need the empowering of the Spirit. Fascinating. I think we, we always throw people into the deep end. Always. Um, uh, if, we, if we set people up for success, they probably won't need Jesus. We give people problems beyond human ability to solve. In Acts chapter 6, um, it says, we will turn this responsibility over to them. They came with a problem. They go, great, you solve it. They, was, it was a distribution of food. They go, you solve the problem. <clears throat> it's great leadership. Ownership and faith result from giving people God-sized problems versus practical solutions. To change the 20-80 rule, do you know the 20-80 rule that 20% of the people do 80% of the work? You know that rule in church, right? <clears throat> the only way to change that, I think, problem is, uh, is to share your problems, which takes lots of faith and humility. Instead of coming in as a rock star, I've got this cool new program, you should sign up for it. I think that's how you create the 2080 rule. But I think it flips when you don't come in as the hero, you come in as somebody needing Jesus, and you invite people into the struggles that you're having. Harvard Business Review, when you become a leader, your job is to define the problem, not solve it. George Patton, I think you guys might know him. Never tell people how to do things. Tell them what to do, and they will surprise you with their ingenuity. What do you guys think about this? A problem-oriented approach to leadership. <clears throat> how you do that? Does it make sense? Or is it a little confusing? So when we raise up new uh, small group leaders in our church, we go, this is the problem that we're facing right now. The anxiety goes up. Uh, some people in their anxiety shout out um, uh, superficial solutions. People kindly describe how they've tried those and it doesn't work. And then we pray. And we cry out to God for miracles. And then we try to obey him when he tells us what to do. It becomes a different experience than saying, hey, I thought it all through. This is just what we need to do in small groups. And if you follow my plan perfectly, then our church is going to explode. And if you don't, uh, it just, uh, and our church stays small, it's probably because you weren't obedient enough. And uh, you should work on that, you know. I just don't think that's how it works. So, again... Any comments on this?
And then they often are going to have better solutions. I don't have the best solutions. I just call people to better problems. And then they pray, they find out what God's saying, and they're way smarter than I am. And they're just going to do a way better job, plus they're going to own it. You know? I don't, I'm the senior pastor of our church. Uh, <clears throat> we don't have a big church. I don't attend the, uh, the operations meeting. Because any problem that they have, they're just going to look to me for answers. Well, that's not good leadership development, so I just don't even go. <laughs> and uh, they have to come up with solutions, and their solutions are outstanding. And they have, their buy-in is way more than just me having a bunch of minions that carry out my ideas. Who needs that? Let them own it. Let them do it. And they, they're taking the church places that I would have never thought of doing. But it's hard for me to give up control and to let that happen. So inside of church's vision and plans, uh, I think this is what we do. We connect personally. There's a great title of a book. It's not a great book, but uh, I like the title. I mean, it's okay. But it's called uh, Business at the Speed of Trust. It's a secular book. It's a great title. They figured out in the marketplace that you can never grow faster than you have trust. Isn't that an interesting thing for a secular author to discover? If there's mistrust in a team, the, 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 the team can't grow or, or do what it's been commissioned to do. There's too much suspicion and infighting and, uh, and you know, covering your own butt and stuff like that. So you always have to foster trust, and as soon as you have trust, then you can grow. So the first thing that we do in leadership development is we build trust relationships with people. And we care about them for their sake. I remember I went to uh, my uh, doctoral studies was in, uh, in Seattle. And there was a, one of my profs was Jan Hedinga, and he led a Baptist church in Bothell. And uh, what a godly man. And I never forget what he said. He says, what I do, he, so he had a big church which means that you can spend all of your time just working with people on staff, you know. <clears throat> he says, I always make sure that I'm meeting with somebody who will never, uh, the odds are, you know, very high that they will never personally benefit me in any way. He says, I just need that for my heart. I just need to meet with people who will not benefit me. And I've really take, I really like that a lot. I just, I try to do things that are outside of our church that just won't ever benefit us. I just, because I, I, I want to be a kingdom Christian before I'm a church pastor, you know? And this is, I mean, it's probably selfish, but I just know the wickedness of my heart, and I can just make it all about building Jesus' church when really it's just about building my ego. And so I have to guard myself by doing things that don't benefit me. So we, we, tr we build trust by being there for other people's benefit, not for their ministry potential. <clears throat> and then we cast a kingdom problem. As you, uh, as you build a trust relationship and they begin to ask you questions, you share your problems. You know, some of my children have uh, FASD, fetal alcohol syndrome. They're quite challenging behaviorally. Impulse control is not easy for them. 
and you know, and I'll, I'll tell people about that. And they go, have you tried their diet? It's like, oh, let me write that down, as if I've never thought of that, you know. <laughs> have you tried getting them to bed on time? Okay, thanks. You just feel dismissed, don't you? When people give that kind of platitudes and advice. It's just, uh, and so I just up, I just up the problem. <clears throat> But you cast a kingdom problem, a problem that's bigger, a problem that's bigger than what human ingenuity and cleverness can solve. Uh, my son Jonathan, who's um, the executive pastor of our church, which means he just basically runs the church, he, uh, we were noticing in our city that, the, that youth pastors, their problem was to collect 30 kids to be in their youth group. That was, the, that was their presenting problem. And so if they could get 30 kids, that meant that you could probably keep your job, right? Because it takes about 30 kids, and you have, then have tithing families. And so if you have 30 kids, you can probably keep your job as a youth pastor. It's just math. And so that was the problem that most youth pastors had. So what my son did, he calls it 100 coffees. He went around to youth pastors saying, that's not your problem. You're building your little youth group while there's, with 30 kids while there's thousands of kids in high school campuses who will never hear about the gospel and the church is doing nothing to reach those kids. That should be your problem. You need a kingdom-sized problem, not keeping your job problem. So you just went around giving youth pastors a bigger problem. And so a few years ago before COVID happened, um, he gets youth pastors I, I, I forget how many high schools there are. We call it the Lower Mainland. It's Metro Vancouver. Um, I think there's a, it's between one and 200 high schools. And uh, by, by mobilizing these youth pastors with a better problem, we had, have you, do you know what Alpha is? Have you heard of Alpha? It's an evangelistic outreach. We had Alpha in 50% of the high schools in the Lower Mainland, secular schools by giving people a, a, a kingdom problem, not a, here's three tricks to grow your youth group problem. Cast a kingdom problem, and then create and do a plan together. Say, well, this is my problem, what can we do? And then we just come up with stuff, try, poke holes in it, and try again. And I think that that's what leadership is. You build trust, you cast kingdom problems, and then you do stuff together. Super fun. I love this quote by a mathematician named George Box. All models are wrong, but some are useful. I love that. Because uh, most, most pastors just think that their discipleship path, their model is just like the best one ever. And it's not. It's just the one that we do. In every nation churches, we have typically the four E's of uh, moving people through a path. It's just, it's not the best, but it's what we do. And what makes it great is when there's faith involved and love involved in it, not the thing itself, but it's that we've decided to do something together. So uh, <clears throat> that's what I think the leadership challenge is. And uh, we'll get to what I think the problem is in just a moment, the deepest problem. But uh, what do you think of a, of a problem-oriented approach to... Uh, to leadership.
Very different, hey? It's not about giving advice. I love that. Because I've just never felt like my advice is ever good enough. And I'm mostly overwhelmed when people tell me their problems. Absolutely. Yeah, people don't, people want solutions. They don't want problems. They're already overwhelmed with their problems. And so it's, it's not easy to give people better problems, is it? Um, I think our talk on anxiety, which is what we're going to get to, is, uh, is going to address this. But you're, you're saying it really well. People want to be rescued, and uh, it's hard to help people take responsibility. That's a, that's a challenging thing to do. So, let's look at, uh, any other comments? Thank you for that, Carrot. Any other comments? So let's look at the leadership part. So what is a leadership's greatest challenge? It's not those we serve, which is what most people think the problem is. It's them. It's our hearts. Uh, it says in Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. My, far and away, my biggest problem in leadership is my own heart. Far and away. It has nothing to do with the people that I serve. My own heart is the primary problem. If you... Uh, uh, I really, well, we're going to be doing a parenting seminar this afternoon. But if you, uh, if you look at uh, most parenting books, most parenting books are how to fix children. The assumption in parenting books is that the children are the problem, not the parent. That's never been true. But parents, don't want, parents want to fix their children rather than own the wickedness of their own hearts. At least I do. I want my kids to have problems. I don't want to have problems. And then I'll work on fixing their problems and feeling very noble as a parent. When the real problem is me. I'm the problem. As you say, who wants that, right? <clears throat> so we don't fix the child. Well, I'll get to that in a minute. So the problem is we're often blind. Sorry. Uh, an unhealthy heart is self-centered. And a good heart is other-centered. Think of a bad boss. We've all had bad bosses. Who is a bad boss thinking about? They're always thinking about themselves, right? That's by definition what a bad boss is. So their problem is who they're thinking about. And what is, who, who does a good boss think about? Others. I mean, it's not rocket science. It's just really hard to think about others. But if you've had a boss that actually thinks about you, you like them, don't you? They're good bosses, because they're not just thinking about themselves, how to secure their job, how to get a promotion, whatever it is. So the problem is, <clears throat> well, I have written here, and I think it's true, it's hard to go wrong with a good heart. It's hard to go wrong with a good heart. And I think if our hearts are about loving God and loving others, it's pretty hard to go wrong with that. It's not about tips and tricks, which is what most leadership books are about how to manipulate people to get them to do what you want. The problem is we're often blind to our motives. 
So here's the big where we need a drum roll. What does selfishness feel like? So if selfishness is our root problem, which I think, by the way, is what, is what sin is, it's Genesis 3, you will be like God, you decide right and wrong. It's a self-centered orientation is what sin is. So if sin is the problem, how can we stop ourselves before we sin? Well, there's a feeling that precedes the behavior, and I think it's anxiety. I think anxiety is the biblical emotional issue, and I'll try to defend that statement. Anxiety, I think, is our root problem. What is anxiety? Number one, you'll see in your notes, it is the mental health condition of the 21st century. It's the most common mental illness. Um, Listen to this quote by a psychologist. The average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. That... uh, um, they would have been hospitalized for the amount of anxiety. I think our society is riddled, is riddled with anxiety. I think it is the issue, and we're going to find out why, that it all has to do with trust in God. But what kills me is that we're treating it, we're treating the symptoms of anxiety instead of wrestling through uh, what causes it. So it's also the Bible's primary concern. Do not be afraid is mentioned 300 times in the Bible. Listen to this. Do not be afraid is mentioned 12 times more often than do not make idols. And idolatry is a pretty big deal in the Bible. 12 times more often. It's mentioned four times more than pride. Anxiety, biblically, anxiety is a big deal. Now I'm using the word anxiety as as a way to just delineate between there's healthy fear and unhealthy fear, all right? So I'm just using anxiety to describe unhealthy fear. Um, There's also things we should be afraid of. God, you know, running in front of a car. But an unhealthy fear, I'm just using the word anxiety. And there can even be healthy anxiety, so we can get tricky. But it's just a, a simplified way to talk. So given its importance, what is anxiety? And here is also the next drum roll. Anxiety is what it feels like to mistrust God. It's what it feels like to mistrust God. It is faithless concern. In Mark 4.40, Jesus is there in the boat. He's sleeping in the boat during a storm, which is weird. And uh, they say to the creator of the universe, don't you care that we drown? And what's his response? Um, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Faith is the antidote to fear. Fear is anxiety, is what it feels like when we're not trusting God. Um, And so we see how it works. If you look in your notes, Genesis 3 is uh, everything for me, always goes back to Genesis. But we can see it here. So, uh, did God really say, that's, this, is, this is the first sin, so it's the prototype for all sin, all right? So if you guys want to know how to sin, this is what you do. So the first thing that you need to do is you need to doubt God. Did God really say? Doubt. It's like, huh, what did he say anyways? Doubt, a seed of doubt, which is faithless. It's challenging faith. And so, if I can't trust God, 
because I'm not sure what he really said and if he's really good, if he's really powerful. Those are always the problems. Is he good? Is he great? I can't trust that. You become God. You be like God. Since you can't trust him, you be like God. You decide what to do. And if it's all on us, uh, what's the first emotion described in the Bible? I was afraid. Well, if it's all up to me, I should be freaked out, right? I mean, this is, this is called secular society. If it's a godless society and it's all up to us, well, God help us all, we should be freaking out right now. And so it's the, I think anxiety is the appropriate response to me thinking that I'm in control. It's illogical. And so I'm afraid. And then what happens is anxiety is always going to send us in one of two directions. So I hid and the woman. So I hid is about uh, withdrawal, going into a bubble, playing more video games, just emotionally or physically opting out, or blame. It's the woman who did it. It's Satan who did it. It's, it's blame. It's projecting outwards the problem instead of being honest about what's going on inside. So we mistrust God, we trust self, we feel anxious and act sinfully, which is always to demand or distance. I should actually reverse those, distance or demand. Thirdly, anxiety is viral. <clears throat> we know that the Omicron virus is, is more contagious uh, than Delta and the like. Um, anxiety is highly contagious. And when you're around an anxious person, you, you, you catch it. And so the biggest issue in leadership is managing the anxiety of the group of people that you're leading. It's very hard to do. Because as soon as you try to move things forward, people's anxiety goes up. And what you're mostly doing is managing anxiety. I'll explain a lot more of that. But the problem is it's also cancerous in that it consumes that to which it is attached. If you've been around an anxious person, and Garrett, I think that you might have been referring to this, but if you've been around an anxious person, they will use you up. This is, this is what's wrong in my life. Could you please be my savior? Just help me. And they'll puff you up with, oh, there's never been a small group leader like you. You're the best small group leader I've ever had. It's a setup. And if you could just help me just a little bit more, if I could maybe move in with you. Um, if you could maybe give me just a little bit more money. If you could, et cetera, et cetera. And what anxiety does is it uses up the people around because uh, they're just, they're surviving, they're drowning. And what do, you guys know this, right? What does a lifeguard do when somebody's drowning? What do they do? Do they come immediately over to them? Now you have to stay a little bit away, right? Why? That's right, they'll just, they'll drag you down. And this is what people emotionally do to us all the time. They just pull us down into their problem and expect us to save them. So it's cancerous. It consumes that to which it is attached. I like this quote. Anxiety is a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. Doesn't that sound innocent? If encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. Wow, hey? That's the power of anxiety. It can, it can overwhelm us. It's overwhelmed me. Often. I'm often overwhelmed by anxiety. 
Number four, anxiety is a primary emotion, which gives rise to secondary emotions, such as anger, depression, confusion, shame. So if you can uh, picture an emotion tree, isn't that special? So you have a tree, and there's little branches and leaves. And, uh, and if we look at the branches and leaves of the tree, we have all these different kinds of negative emotions, such as I've listed here, confusion and shame and discouragement. And, and now if you take, listen, this is very, very helpful, anger. If you take any one of those negative emotions and you trace them to the trunk, anxiety is going to be driving that emotion. Anxiety is a primary emotion that manifests itself in all kinds of ways. This is very helpful because if you look at somebody who's angry and you tell them to stop being angry, it just makes them more upset. Why? Because anger is not a primary issue. It's a secondary issue. You can't work on anger directly. You have to work on the anxiety that drives the anger and then the anger takes care of itself. It's an anxious problem. If I'm angry, I'm trying to control my world. Why am I controlling my world? Because I'm afraid. And unless I'm honest about my fears, I'll keep using that mechanism to control. If I'm depressed, there's a, there's a, few, uh, there's a few definitions of depression that are helpful. One of which is uh, depression is anger turned inward. I'm not angry out there, I'm angry at me. And I've, I'm overloaded. And I know I'm failing. And I hate myself for it. And it's so hard to think about. My body and mind just shut down. It's anxiety. It's a form of anxiety. And so again, if you ever try to hit depression head on, if you've, I've been depressed, and the harder you try to just pick yourself up and get over it, it just doesn't work. It's because it's a secondary issue, not a primary issue. The primary issue, biblically, I think, is anxiety. So rather than manage our feelings, which are always symptoms, it is better to trace our feelings to their source and ask, what is motivating me right now, fear or faith? What's motivating me right now, fear or faith? That is a super valuable therapeutic question. What's motivating me? If fear is motivating me, literally, it doesn't matter what I do, it won't go well. Because it's being motivated by something that's inherently unhealthy. The good news is, as I'm motivated by faith, it will probably go quite well, even if I'm not super bright. Because my heart's in a good place, and I'm trusting Jesus in that place. So most people are managing their anxieties, uh, sorry, managing their symptoms, as opposed to getting to the root problem, which is ultimately mistrust. Finally, anxiety is a choice. It is a state of mind, not a set of circumstances. Okay, you got to just listen to this because this is important. There is a difference between stress and anxiety. Stress is called life, okay? You can't avoid stress. Stress is circumstantial. But listen, anxiety is a response to stress. It's a response to a difficult situation. But unfortunately, we collapse the two 
and think that the way that we overcome our anxiety is by reducing our stress. But you can never make your world small enough. And God knows I've tried. You can't make your world small enough to get rid of all stress. Instead, our Father asks us to find him in the midst of our stress. And as we find and trust him in those places, our stress doesn't need to turn into anxiety because we're able to trust him there. People will often come up to, uh, to my wife, Debbie, and say, how do, you, you know, how do you have 11 children? Good heavens, I got one and I'm drowning, you know? And, um, and she has two, two, I think, great responses. She says, well, God's called us to have those children, not you. So uh, we just want to be responsive to whatever God's called us to do, and this is what God's called us to do. You don't have to be like us. You get to do what God's called you to do. But the other answer is, we started with one. Now, I remember having one child. It was all-consuming. I remember very, very clearly. I have, I'm the youngest, so I had no younger siblings to take care of. I, hold my, I held my boy like this. You know, not like this, like this. Like, I just zero context for being a parent. And, uh, and I remember we had a Honda Accord, and we had to buy a minivan, because all the stuff didn't fit into a, a car. <laughs> like, it's just stuff. I just remember being so overwhelmed by this. And then, of course, after a while, you know, you get used to it. And then, the, you know, the first one comes along, and you're sterilizing everything. And, you know, second one comes along, the soothers on the ground, you just stick it back in, you know, it's no big deal. But at the beginning, it's just like, ah, I can't, you know. Um, I lost my train of thought. Yeah, so, uh, so uh, that's stress. And so then what you do is you say, Father, uh, who are you in this place? Who am I? What are you calling me? You, you invite God into that moment, and then the stress doesn't have to turn into anxiety. And the problem is when the stress turns into anxiety and you're a fearful parent, that's a problem. That's why the, the title of my little uh, parenting seminars fearless parenting because anxious parents that's a problem not imperfect parents every all and parents are imperfect but anxious parents that anxiety gets projected onto the children and they start compensating for our dysfunction that's a problem so that's what anxiety is it's a state of mind not a set of circumstances Let's look at the signs of anxiety. Anxiety leads us toward two extremes of control, underfunctioning or overfunctioning. Uh, I remember um, I, was a, uh, I was pastoring, this was about, uh, I'm guessing about 15 years ago. Uh, my best friend, we planted the church together. Our church is about 22 years old. Planted church together just incredibly godly guy and we had a falling out and so I, t- I asked him you know but you know we've made up and everything but it was a really hard time and I asked him I says you know what am I doing wrong and he says I couldn't follow an anxious leader anymore I thought, not anxious <laughs> and here's what I thought anxiety was I thought anxiety was heightened emotion and freaking out. Uh, The way that anxiety looks like in my life is I get smaller and quieter. 
it's as much anxiety as the freaking out anxiety. So my wife does the freaking out anxiety. And then what I do is I say, what's your problem? Why don't you trust in Jesus? Like, I don't know, I do, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and, and, then, and, she, and then she just makes her more upset. <laughs> and what I didn't realize is that her overfunctioning was actually a sign of my underfunctioning. And the more I chilled out and got quiet, otherwise known as irresponsible, the more I got irresponsible, the more she had to overfunction and compensate for my irresponsibility. That took forever to figure out. That she was actually reacting, which is what anxiety is, we'll get to that in a minute, it's reactivity, that she's reacting off of my underfunctioning by overfunctioning. And this is psychology 101, is people are always living in reaction to one another, and we're always balancing each other off. And so my anxiety looks like over underfunctioning, whereas others will look like overfunctioning. And it's also either or. Uh, anxious thinking is very black and white. It's, is, is it right or is it wrong? Are you affirming or not affirming? Is Jesus Lord or is he not? You know, is Jesus, if somebody was to ask me, is Jesus Lord of my life? I would say, I hope so. I can't say yes. I want him to be. But I'm on a journey. And it's embarrassing, you, you know, seeing your pastor, I should have it all figured out. I don't have it all figured out. And I want him to be my Lord. And I'm, I'm working it out with him. But I can't, I can't just, I can't make black and white statements. It's, it's anxiety. <clears throat> and I do believe that homosexuality is a sin. But, uh, I sin every day. And we're trying to figure out how to love sinners like me. And uh, my son is gay, and I love him, and I watch the journey that he's on, and it looks like my journey. And it's not simple just to say, you're more of a sinner than I am. And if you knew his upbringing, I'm proud of him. Because if you knew what he went through growing up, it was a hell of a life. And so maybe we need to be a little more generous in our understanding of people and not quite so clear in, uh, in our judgments. And again, I'm not saying to be vague in that Jesus is Lord and the forgiveness of sins and the authority of God's word and what sin is. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But how we carry those things out need to be much more nuanced. And it's also serious. If you, uh, if you go to a church or a home that is serious, it's probably an anxious home. In anxiety, everything is serious, nothing is funny. <laughs> There's nothing funny. Uh, our, our second oldest son that we adopted from birth, his name is Toby. Oh, I gotta take a break, don't I? Yeah, I'll, I'll, you guys need to stretch. Um, um, so my, my son, Toby, he's, uh, he's a snowboarder dude. And he talks really slowly like he's on drugs, like, yo, like that. And, uh, and he's really funny, uh, very adventuresome. And uh, he's, always been, uh, he's always been a rebel. He's just a rebel at heart. And so uh, 
my wife is German. And so he comes, he, he comes home from school one day and he says, hey mom, I'm thinking of getting a swastika tattooed on my cheek. And so it's like he has two favorite pastimes, snowboarding and getting a rise out of his mother. You know? <laughs> and they're equally amusing to him. And so, uh, so he says, you know, I th I'm thinking of getting a swastika. And then, how dare you? And not all Germans are you know, Nazis. And I can't believe that you would talk like that. And, and he goes, it would be small. Because <laughs> if that's anything, you know. And he's just, it's, it's provocation, you know. And so, you know, the joke is I've taken my course. And so, uh, so I say to Toby, I go, hey, Tobes, why don't you get a swastika on all four cheeks? And then, uh, and then he thinks that's funny, and it's done. It's just done. But if you enter into anxiety, it just, it just keeps building, right? But if you diffuse anxiety, and humor is a great way to diffuse anxiety, it, uh, it can help a bit. Uh, anxiety is very rule-based. It's, uh, it's always about rules. It's, it's making solutions with generalities. We're just going to have all people do this. You know, you, that's how governments make solutions, right? We're just going to, just everybody has to do this. And of course, what else are they going to do? It's, it's a society. But it's, it, it can often be based on, uh, on anxiety. And it's labeling. It's labeling. It's, uh, oh, you're a this. I remember my, my psychologist, uh, my, uh, my counselor, who is a psychologist, he, uh, I got free counseling for like 30 years. It's outstanding. Uh, I just become his friend, you know. But anyways, he, uh, he says to me, he says, uh, he says, psychological labels are good for one thing, funding. Because if you, if you need to get resources, you know, you need to come up with the label and then the government gives you money for it. Like our kid is FASD, so now we get money for that. But he says this, it, labels are unhelpful psychologically because what you end up doing in your anxiety is living up to your label. Oh, I'm depressed. Oh, I'm, you know, or I'm, uh, I'm, I'm anxious. I'm um, aggressive. I'm going through PDS, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, where those things go, PSD. I'm this, I'm that. And then we end up living up to the label that we use to ease our anxiety. I watch people, it's very, very interesting to me. I'll watch people have relief when they get a label. I've watched this many times, it's fascinating to me. They go, I'm on the, I'm on the spectrum. I can now understand myself. It doesn't really matter. The issue of faith it's just not super interested, nor is it necessary to come up with psychological labels. By the way, the only caveat to that is medication. I think that uh, we need to have pretty clear diagnoses if we're going to start putting, consuming things, because um, they can, that can be an issue. <clears throat> um, it's labeling, it's reactive. It's survival. Right now, uh, the oldest girl in our, of our foster kids, she really hates us right now. It's, it's not great. And she's reporting us to the government and making all kinds of accusations about us that are, is really, really hard on Debbie and I. It's a difficult time for us right now. And uh, 
um, she's just surviving. And if she's not in control, she freaks out. And so her solution is to just up control. And so she's making sure that she's in charge of our home. It's not going to work, but she's going to try. And our, my heart goes out to her because she's trying to survive a moment. Survivors are full of anxiety and they stop thinking. You know what, how adrenaline works, right? You get super smart and super, you get super strong and super stupid. It's what adrenaline does. You can't live off of adrenaline. It's, a, it's appropriate for a moment. The way my daughter reacted when she was growing up, she did need to survive. It was a hell of a life. But now, it's not appropriate. She can trust some people, but it's difficult for her. So, so labeling, reactive, and self-centered. So, uh, one sign, we're looking at signs of anxiety, one sign of anxiety is we take everything personally. Um, I'm, a, you know, I'm an expert at this. But, uh, you know, it's the idea where you cook a meal and somebody says, oh, where did you buy the beef? And they go, why, don't you like it? Like, nope, just wanted the name of a store. That's all we're looking for. But we take things personally because we're heightened and self-protected and we're threatened. And so usually the way that the enemy invites us into a place of safety is through control, through self-protection. We sin then to try to manage our emotions without faith. That is a big deal. Romans 14.23b, 23a is on circumcision, I'm not talking about that. 23b says everything not of faith is sin. Fascinating verse. That uh, when we try to manage our emotions without faith, it leads to sin. Because sin is always Anxiety management. It's anxiety management. If I have needs and those needs are screaming in my ear, I'm going to get them met. Sexually, addiction, cheating, gossiping. If I feel insecure, I'm anxious about whether I have value, I'm going to gossip so I feel better about myself in front of others. Sin is sin because it alienates and it's rooted in this emotional feeling of anxiety that's birthed in uh, unbelief or mistrust as we talked about earlier. So if we, uh, so we're often sin is trying to find relief versus real solutions. There's this, uh, I'll talk about that in the parenting class. If we deal with anxiety first, we deal with the seed before it flowers into destructive sin. I love Psalm 37, 8. Do not fret. It only leads to evil doing. Fret, fret is anxiety, right? Don't fret. It only leads to evil doing. I know in my life that when I start to doubt God, my anxiety rises and I become more sinful. I'm sarcastic to my kids. I'm controlling at work. I can tell it's my anxiety. And so instead of managing my behavior, I need to go back to my father, say, Father, I've mistrusted you again today. And as I find my identity in him, as I rest in him, then I'm able to find a place of peace in my heart, and now I'm not as sinful in how I relate to others. Does that make sense to you? 
If it doesn't, please say so, because it's really important that we grab hold of this. Mistrust, you know, people say that the root sin is pride. I think the root sin is mistrust. I think that's, I think that's what Genesis 3 is saying. Did God really say? Starts us down a very difficult road. And when we mistrust God, we then have to trust ourselves, which leads to self-management, which is, produces anxiety, and it produces sin. Because sin is how to keep our world happy without Jesus. Unless we figure out trust, we will sin. Anxiety focuses on more. We need more expertise. As pastors, um, we're obsessed with the latest book. Somebody, if another pastor says they read a really good book, we all go out and buy it because we're anxious that we're not going to know more effort. I remember when I, uh, our church was going through that difficult time about 15 years ago, and I told Debbie, I thought it was so heroic, it's embarrassing now. I says, I'm going to work really hard for the next three years. You're not going to see me much. What a stupid solution. I didn't say I was going to pray more. I didn't say I was going to trust God. I said I was going to work harder. That's my go-to. That's what anxiety looks like for me. I say, I just work harder. I love working. Working isn't hard for me. So I just work harder. Problem solved. But I never looked at the anxiety in my own heart. It just created more problems. Or empathy. Let's just, can't, can't, empathy. Can't we just all get along? Can't we just all agree? Can't we just, uh, Debbie's, uh, Debbie's dad was a functioning alcoholic growing up, and a uh, functional alcoholic. And, um, and so he would go off on the kids sometimes. And you know what uh, her mom would do? She would say, would anybody like a chocolate bar? Isn't that fascinating? And she would giggle and then hand everybody a chocolate bar. It was anxiety. Dad is shrieking out, let's go to a happy place and have a chocolate bar together. It just breaks my heart. It just, uh, it's empathy. I just want everybody to get along as opposed to being honest about what's going on and really working it through. But these things are never enough to find peace. So how do we get free? Finally, we're at the solution. How do we get free? I've just tried to raise your anxiety and uh, clarify the problem so that we can hear a, a solution. Anxiety is a relational issue, not a personal issue. Okay, that's a big deal. Uh, in, uh, the, the, I mean, there's different schools of, of psychology, but I'll tell you what pop psychology says. Pop psychology says, you have personal issues. I really don't believe that. I don't believe that anger, depression, confusion, um, Whatever the uh, schizophrenia, which we could talk about, those are relational issues. They're not individual issues. A guy named Murray Bowen studied uh, children with schizophrenia. Get the schizophrenia. And what he discovered is that schizophrenia is a symptom of unhealthy families. That's shocking. Not only that, we're not blaming parents, but, we're, but when they created a healthy family system, the child with schizophrenia, the symptoms went down. That is, I mean, that is like revolutionary. 
It is very, very hard for us living in such an individualistic society to see our problems as relational, not internal. I just uh, listened to an outstanding book on the way down here called A Strange New World, and it's talking about the therapeutic individualism as characterizing Western society. And we're taught to think that our problems are internal. No, they're not. They're relational. When I'm anxious, it's because of my relationship with God is out of sorts. And it's very, very difficult for me to interpret my problems. Like, usually I think my problems are like you. And so what I need to do is I need to pull away from whoever you are and work on my problems. No. I need to engage with my wife. I need to engage with my God. I need to engage with my church and children and friends. And it's in relationship that I actually find health and healing. It's a very radical thought. We live in reaction to people. Silly story. When I was in grade eight, uh, which you don't call grade eight, I don't know what you call it, but uh, when I was in grade eight, the, um, I had a math teacher, and the math teacher said, uh, with a straight face, uh, math is fun. We all burst out laughing. He didn't laugh. I got an A in math that year. Uh, next year was Mr. Gregory. That was Mr. Pope. Then I had Mr. Gregory. Uh, I didn't like him. He didn't like me. He hated math. I got a C minus. The reason why I didn't get a D is I didn't want to see Mr. Gregory next year. I hated math. I'm living in reaction to people and God all the time. My life is reactive. I am not, no man is an island, you know that saying. We are living in reaction all the time. Our over or under functioning produces a reaction in others. So here's how it works. If you, oh, I can't, you got a hand that's wrecked. Can you just put up your hand if you don't mind? Okay, now, uh, what are you doing? I'm pressing against Yes. Your... Yeah, and why are you pressing? Because you're pressing against my... <laughs> That's right. Everybody presses. Because uh, uh, anxiety always produces an equal and opposite reaction in the people around us. You can't help yourself. One time somebody didn't. It bugged me. It wrecked the whole analogy. <laughs> but, uh, but we're always... The harder we push, the harder you push your kids to change, the harder you try to get your small group in church to be godly, the harder you push, the greater the reaction will be. But, now you push against me, and if I don't, if I don't resist, where is he now? You're closer. Yeah. You're closer. See, if I resist, there's distance. But if I don't resist, you just come closer. But it takes faith to come closer. What if they push me over? I'm not afraid of that. I'm not afraid of that. Because uh, that relationship isn't defining me. I don't, I'm not afraid of being swallowed up. I used to think for years that I had to manage how much I loved people. Because what the society has told me is that love is exhausting and people will consume me. It's not true. It's not true. What consumes me is my anxiety to be a savior for people. That consumes me. 
that's my problem, not theirs. My capacity to love has dramatically increased when I made my problem faith and not self-protection. Very big deal for me. Very big deal. My problem is anxiety. When it's anxiety, I can only love a few people at a time because it overwhelms me. But the reason why it overwhelms me is not because they're overwhelming or they're pushing me down. It's because I let them. Because my anxiety says I need to be their savior. I need to be the solution. I need to make it all better. That's what's exhausting, not their problems. How I respond to their problems is what's exhausting. So over-under-functioning produces an, a, a reaction in others, and it actually creates distance. The problem is seldom the problem. Our anxious reaction is the problem. Therefore, we often create our enemies. We often create our enemies. You're a wicked. You're evil. You're rebellious. I'm not. You're a sinner. I'm not a sinner. Those are, uh, those are it's, it's unhelpful. Of course I'm a sinner. I'm also forgiven. I'm also empowered by the Spirit of God. I'm born again. But Galatians 5 tells me very clearly that there's still a battle in my heart between light and darkness. I have not finished that battle because I'm still breathing. I have examples of this, but I'll, I'll save them for you. Uh, freedom is found in finding a better person to react off of, which is God. Okay, follow, follow, the, follow the logic. We are relational people because we're made in the image of a relational God, all right? So we can't help but be relational. Um, you guys are telling me about a, a series called Alone? Yes. And what's the primary reason why they can't be alone anymore? It's not because of physical reasons, it's because of emotional reasons. They can't be away from others for that long because we're built for a relationship. But um, I just have to do a bit of psychology in a, in a, just for a minute. So um, think of a bicycle. If you have a relationship with two, it's unstable, right? It easily falls over. But as soon as you have three, it becomes stable. So psychologically, what all of us are doing is we're all triangling for, for safety. So if you have a problem with somebody, you'll rope in your kids to come on your side. You'll rope in a coworker to come on your side because then it helps you feel more stable in the relationship. So we're always trying to create triangles. The only healthy triangle is a triangle when it's you, me, and God. And when now we're both trying to react and respond off of who God is and who God says we are, we now can have stability in our uh, um, uh, in our relationship. As we are secure in our Father's love and power, we respond to God instead of react to others. This is about identity, trust, and obedience. That is just so, that's such a big deal to me. That I, I, I'll listen, I listen to people, <clears throat> when they come and meet me, people meet me not because they're doing well. People meet me because they're not doing well. And when people describe their problems, I get overwhelmed. Um, so I'll tell you what goes on in my head. If you ever meet with me, this is what's going on in my head. So you're going to tell me your problem. It's going to overwhelm me because I care about you. And I'm not that smart. So I get overwhelmed. 
So here's what I think. As, I, as they're telling me their problem, I think, wow, that's overwhelming. I am so inadequate right now. Whew. I go, well, I can't solve their problem, but I can love them in Jesus' name. Because Jesus is present here. So I can love them. I can care. And so I take my eyes off of my performance, even off of their problems, and I try to be present. And as I'm present, then the Spirit of God gives me something to say, or a prayer to pray, or just care to be shown. But it's my anxiety that complicates the moment. And it's my faith in Jesus that allows me to stay loving. So our goal, this is the big phrase, there's a new book written by uh, Mark Sayers called Non-Anxious Presence. Our goal is to be the non-anxious presence in any given moment. This looks like being present and peaceful versus withdrawing and controlling. So we've said that uh, anxiety always looks like opting out of relationship or controlling the relationship. It's what anxiety always looks like. It goes one of two directions. Because that's the only two directions that exist, right? You have to go away or come close. And so, uh, so what uh, the peace of God allows us to do is be fully present in a relationship without being controlling. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. Uh, we either opt out or control. It takes Jesus to be able to stay present without being controlling. I think it's, it's a work of the Spirit. And, and when we're present with people without being controlling, then they now react off of our non-anxious presence. The anxiety goes down, and we can now all, all hear Jesus together as to how to move forward. This is what leadership is to me. So, uh, as a leader, I bring tension into a moment. I go, our small groups are, uh, non we don't have non-Christians in our small groups. This is horrible. We're supposed to be a, a church that's reaching out. We aren't reaching out. And um, I think there's lots of reasons why they aren't coming, and people's anxiety is rising. And they go, well, we've tried. What, do we have to work harder? I don't even know if I can do it. What are they doing? They're reacting and either feeling like they have to perform better, which is control, or they go, I don't even know if I'm called to be a small group leader. Withdraw. That's where they'll go every time. I watch it over and over and over again because I do it. <laughs> and so, uh, so they're going to they rise up because the tension, I brought tension into the room, but I'm not freaking out. And I'm with you. I don't think you're bad. I don't think you're some rotten small group leader. We're just figuring this out together. And Jesus is the head of the church, and we submit to his loving authority, and he's present now. And I'm bringing up a problem without blaming, without beating myself up, or I'm, I'm just, we're, and then peace comes, and people begin to find hope and faith for that issue. What I'm doing is managing the anxiety. What they're doing is hearing God on what to do. Very fun. Very fun. So our goal is to be the non-anxious presence. Here's Isaiah 41.10. Do, do not fear, for I am with you. That's the answer to fear. I'm with you. Do not look anxiously about. Can't you, can't you picture doing that? I do that all the time. Do not look anxiously about, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
Let me tell you one more story and then we'll, uh, we'll conclude. So, uh, so uh, I like mountain biking and people come from all over the world to mountain bike in my city. So you can come and I'll show you the trails. And uh, so I'm out mountain biking one day and a guy, young guy, I'm old, young guy comes up and he's just right, he's really friendly. So he's, he strikes up a conversation. And I go, uh, you know, where are you from? He's from Australia. Um, why'd you move here? Well, for the mountain biking. I go, oh, well, you must be a nice guy, you know. And I go, what do you do for a living? He works in the film industry. And then he asks me, what do, I do? what do you do for a living? I say, I'm a pastor. And so he gets immediately quiet, you know. So we're pedaling just for a little bit longer quiet. And I go, tell me, what is your experience of, uh, of Christians? And he says, Christians are the problem for all that is wrong in this world. Okay. He says, this is why there's AIDS in Africa, and uh, it's why there's war, and, you know, colonial, all, like he just goes off for, I would say, a good 15 to 20 minutes biking up the hill on, uh, on how Christians have messed up the whole world. And so, uh, what's happening in my heart, Right? We're good people, deep down, and stuff. We do good stuff too, Red Cross, and, uh, or whatever, you know? And uh, like that's, that's what my anxiety wants to do. But again, the joke is I've taken the course. So I, I, I say to him, so he, he says, uh, sorry man, I just went off there for a bit. And I go, you don't know the half of it. I go, we are way more messed up than you could ever imagine. I say, I live in this stupid church, and trust me, we are super messed up people. And I go off in the church. I say, I have been hurt more by Christians than by anybody else. And uh, so I go off in the church for a bit. And then he says, so what's, what's he doing? <clears throat> so he's pushing. Christians are bad. And I go, push, push. I go, yes, they are. I'm, he's closer now. And then he says this. Listen to this. He says, to be honest with you, Christians are also the best people that I've ever met. Now, would he have said that if I would have pushed? He would never have said that. If I can create a safe, non-anxious place where I'm trusting Jesus, his anxiety can go down so he can be vulnerable and we can have a gospel conversation instead of defending our points of view. Jesus' incarnation is our example. We enter into people's struggles, we're present, but we respond differently. We're peaceful and faith-filled. So we must learn to be self-aware and learn how to take our pulse. If you could look at me for a sec. I think that what we're constantly doing is this. What's motivating me right now? Fear or faith? What's motivating me right now? And to be honest with you, I could not detect how to take my spiritual pulse for years. I just wasn't sensitive to it. And uh, I go, oh, that's anxiety. No wonder that moment didn't go well. I, didn't even, I wasn't even aware of my anxiety. I'm going to this physiotherapist who, she's got a waiting list of months and months. Everybody wants to see her. And, uh, and she can look at me. She goes, oh, you're twisted to the left. I go, no, I'm not. And then, she, and then she points it out. I go, oh, I am too. And she just can see what I can't see. And I pray that we can be self-aware and begin to detect the anxiety that drives so much of our life, not faith in Christ, but anxiety that we have to perform.
as we trust in Jesus, we bring hope into situations. People then readjust to our non-anxious presence and they respond in like kind. So in conclusion, we don't have an anxiety problem, we have a trust problem. And since trust is a choice, do not be afraid is Jesus' most common command. There is no such thing as moving on. We naturally repeat the past. Is that, is that please tell me that's you. Good. Um, there's no such thing as moving on. We naturally repeat the past unless we become self-aware, identify our fears, learn to take our pulse, and ask what does faith and love look like in this moment? Galatians 5, 6b, it's so funny that each one of these verses start with circumcision, but Galatians 5, 6b says, um, uh, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So what I feel like God invites us to do is to put moments into slow motion and to be able to say, what's motivating me right now? Slow the moment down. What's motivating me right now? Fear or faith? And this moment won't become loving until faith rules my heart. And then we become ministers of reconciliation and we're able to bring people together instead of see the church, see our offices being divided by gossip and sin and alienation and anxiety, all kinds of ugly stuff. So there you go. Thoughts, comments? What do you think about all that? Yeah, so yeah, being the happy-go-lucky, that can be a form of, of withdrawal. That I'm not, um, so what I'll do with Debbie, it's really horrible. I'll, uh, uh, she's freaked out about something, she's anxious. And I'll tell her to have faith and look on the bright side. You can imagine how well that goes. But, uh, but why, is it, why is it not going well? Because my faith statements are actually anxious statements. That what she wants is she wants me to be able to be present, and I'm not. I'm withdrawn emotionally. And so I use spiritual language to justify my emotional withdrawal. Now, here's what's interesting, though. I could say the same thing when I'm present, and she finds that to be good news and life-giving. It's not what we're saying it's whether we're present and peaceful, whether we found Jesus in moments and are really engaged, like Jesus is with us in the incarnation, coming to earth, being in our mess. And uh, uh, what disappoints me about most leadership is about tips and tricks and about how to say the right thing. No, if my heart is in a good place, you can almost say anything, it'll be fine. So... Uh, she, she increased, my anxiety spikes when she brings up a problem, especially about me. And uh, as I find Jesus in that place, I'm able to hear her and stay close. And that's almost all she's asking for. Great question, thank you. It becomes really fun to diagnose issues according to anxiety instead of the presenting problems. People come to me with all kinds of problems, complicated problems, like complicated. You know, my husband is beating me. Well, 
that one's kind of simple. You move out. But after moving out, it gets super complicated. And I'm not that smart. But their anxiety is spiked. And I'm trusting that Jesus is present even in that kind of place. And as I'm calm in my heart, they're able to calm down and they can hear what would be a loving thing to do next. And I don't have to be a rock star to be helpful. <laughs>